You may be seated. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I leaned over and told Amy, I hope they leave something for me to preach. Ryan started it off last night, and Aaron kept it going in Sunday school, and the whole service has led to this moment. It's kind of like I used to tell a buddy of mine when I would be on the on-deck on circle, and there'd be men on base, I'd look at him and say, leave a couple for me. That's a little how I feel, but there's so much that can be said about this, the resurrection. I mean, there's nobody that exhausts this one issue, this one topic. It is, to say it as big is to undersell how important it is. And we have so little time and so much hangs in the balance while we think about this powerful truth from Romans 8, verse 11. I want to read it in just a moment. But listen to these words of the Apostle Paul in this little verse. Listen to him. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. It's a conditional phrase. In other words, Paul is saying everyone doesn't have this Spirit in them. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. All of eternity hangs on the truth that's contained in these words. You are here this morning because you either believe this verse or you are here this morning because you want to believe this verse or you are here because you have rejected this verse but you're, you're, you're trying to be kind Kind to your friend, kind to your neighbor, kind to your mother, kind to your wife or your husband. The world is absolutely divided about the fact of the resurrection. It's the truth on which Christianity stands or falls. You simply can't say, I'm a Christian, but you know, I'm just not certain about the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I don't know if he was physically raised from the dead. If you reject the truth of the resurrection... You have rejected Christianity. And that's exactly how Paul sees it. For Paul, the certain hope of the end of all things is like the sun around which everything else orbits. Now, listen to me, because this might sound strange to you, because we put other things at the center, which are good things, which are true things, which are necessary things. But I want to tell you, I believe after... after a lot of time of study, not just for this message, but in all of my study, it's beginning to pile up the evidence that what center fact is the, the gravitational center of everything orbiting in Paul's theology. It's the surety of the last things. It's the sun. Everything else orbits around it. At the center, the core, the nucleus of that sun is the risen Christ. And then everything flows from it. Justification, sanctification, glorification, heaven, hell, the Trinity. All of that's true and it's vital. It's important. You can't reject it. But if you reject the Son of the universe of theology, which is the resurrection at the core, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've lost it all. 
You're whistling Dixie. We, won't, we might want to make another truth central to Christian faith because the resurrection and eternal reality that points to are difficult for our postmodern minds and the minds of those in our world. But Paul simply will not have it any other way. You saw it in our scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians 15 is built on the fact that at the end of all things, what solidifies all things is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we absolutely know that we have been justified by faith alone. We are being sanctified by grace alone. And we will be glorified by Christ alone. If there's no such thing as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we are to be pitied more than everyone else on the planet. So let me begin today by telling you that, that I believe in the resurrection. I have staked everything that I am on it. There is no wavering. There is no turning back. There is no shifting sand. There is no room for opinion. I don't care what you think, what the world thinks. The resurrection is a fact. So let me give a little meaning to this single verse. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let me just give a little bit of this. Now, this is that in the letter to the Romans, we have the greatest theological treatise that's ever been written. Paul, in this letter, takes on the full corpus of Christian truth. He doesn't take a part of it. He doesn't take a section of it. He takes all of it. He's writing to the center of the Gentile world as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's writing on behalf of the Holy Spirit who is inspiring him to put these things, at, breathing them out into Paul so that he writes them for those Roman Christians and for us today. If you want to study theology, start in Romans. This is it. There is literally no stone left unturned. If you have a question, Romans answers it. But when you look at the letter, we often focus on the shift that happens in chapter 12. And, and we're right to do that. There is a shift. The first 11 chapters of Romans being a great, deep well of theology. Ver chapter 12 then says, basically, since all of that is true, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And then from verse chapter 12, Verse 1 to chapter 16, at the close, it's all the outworkings of this great theology. It's just practical. So we're right to think, hey, it's divided in chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 16. It's a good assessment, but I believe that it's, it is not chapter 12 where we find the central part of the letter. It's not there. This is my point. Paul's argument reaches its highest crescendo point in chapter 8. It's chapter 8 where we see the height of the reality of salvation. Chapter 8 gives the beauty of the gospel like no other single chapter in the Bible. I'm putting a lot of superlatives in this introduction on purpose. I'm trying to drive on the point. If you doze off in this, it's your loss, not mine. This is it. If you ever stayed awake in a sermon, if you ever concentrated and strained to understand, this is yours. Listen, he starts out in verse 1 declaring the truth of the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends in verses 31 through 39 with the powerful, confident hope of the saved. 
What then, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's arguing from the greatest to the latter. If he gave you his son, what else will he withhold from you? If you're a parent in here, you get it. If I give you my son... And then I say, oh, but you can't have my house. You think, what a fool. He's saying, God has given you his own son. How will he not then give you everything? <laughs> who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. We focus on there a lot. Christ Jesus wanted to die. We sing about death. We talk about death. We revel in death. We should, rightly so. But look how Paul phrases this. More than that, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. If you stop Paul down and say, What's the most glorious truth in all the world? He is risen. What about his death? Oh, it's big time. But he's risen. He was born. God in flesh. That's awesome. It's necessary. But he's risen. Who is now at the right hand of God? Jesus is. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life. Get this. Death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, think demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Can anything separate us, Paul? Nothing that's created can separate you. Nothing. He listed a bunch, and then he just said, forget it, I'll be here all night. Nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we sit in utter amazement at the confidence and sheer boldness of the Apostle Paul to, assert, to just simply assert such eternal truth as if it's a given fact. We sit in amazement. I know I do. I get done reading and I just cover my face and, and often am overwhelmed to tears that this is true. And, and you're sitting there maybe in your heart and you're saying, Carlton, everything in me wants that kind of confidence in the reality of salvation. Help me have that confidence. I believe you can have that confidence today. The Holy Spirit can work in you. As a matter of fact, I believe He's probably already working in some of you. In your heart, he's been working, he's been wooing, he's been drawing, and now you're at this place and you're hearing this sermon on this verse and God's ready to change you for all of eternity. I believe that. It wakes me up in the morning and puts me to bed at night. I believe it. God can change you now in an instant. He can take your dead, stony heart and he can say, live! 
and you'll live. And when it comes to life, one thing will happen in immediate response to that life, and it'll be faith in the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You won't need arguments. You won't need anybody to convince you. You won't need anybody to tell you this is true and that is not. You'll just believe it. John 9. I don't know. All I know is I was blind. Now I can see. It's that kind of faith. (laughs) And when it comes, Christ in all of His glory will come to you for all of eternity. So, Where does our little verse fit in this great chapter of this letter? It's the pivot on which all the rest of the truth stated in this chapter turns. If this verse is not true, the rest is not true. This is it. Romans 8, verse 11. First of all, the Spirit of God raised Christ from the dead. That's 11, second part of the verse. Look at it with me. The Spirit raised Christ from the dead. The resurrection is not a theory. It's a fact. That's what this verse states. And I believe it is a fact. Listen to this. These are the proofs. These are some of the proofs. There's, as Aaron said this morning, there, we don't have time for all the proof. But I'll just give you a few really quick. You're going to break your hand if you try to write it, but write it. I'm going to go rapid fire. The Old Testament prophesied that Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. You say, where did it do that? Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham to take his promised son Isaac on the mountain. And when you get there, lay him on the altar and cut his throat and burn him as a sacrifice unto me. And the Bible says that Abraham took his son, I believe about 12 years old, maybe 13 And he laid on him wood, and he left his servants at the foot of the mountain, and he declared this to them, the servants. Isaac, wood on back. Abraham, sacrificial knife in hand. Flame. Looks at the servants and says, You stay here. Me and the boy will go and worship God, and we will come to you again. Hebrews 11 says he believed that God would raise his son from the dead. And it was so. He didn't make him kill his son. But at the moment he was going to strike the fatal blow, God stayed his hand and showed him a sacrifice in the bramble bushes and said, God will provide for himself a sacrifice in this mountain. God will do what he doesn't make you do. But at the core of this is the resurrection. Hebrews says, Abraham believed in the resurrection. Jesus said in John 8, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Now he probably saw it many times, but none brighter than that moment, don't you think? When he was ready to strike the fatal blow and God, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, grabbed his hand and stayed him and showed him an alternate sacrifice, and made a promise to him, I will give a sacrifice, I will do it here. What I'm not making you do, I will do it. I think right there he saw Jesus' day. Jesus says, he saw my day, and he rejoiced. Genesis chapter 22 says, there will be a resurrection. Isaiah 53 
10 through 12. Let's look at Isaiah 53, the chapter that we call the chapter of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God's will prospered in the hand of Jesus because on the cross he looked forward and saw the many who would come from every tribe and tongue and nation to him to be saved. And then God prolonged his days. After he was dead and buried on the third day, how did he prolong them? He raised him from the dead. And he did that because out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. God was satisfied with the anguish he put Jesus under. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. What a beautiful passage in the Old Testament. There's just two cases. Jonah is the third. Jonah is the third case of the proof of resurrection. Jonah was cast off the, the ship into the sea, representing death and sin. It literally happened, but it had deep implications. Jesus takes it this way. And having been cast off into death, God swallowed him in the belly of a well like a tomb for three days. You think that's a chance? Circumstance? Wild happening? No. In three days, he vomited Jonah the prophet up on the shore. Why? Because number two proof of the resurrection. The Old Testament just didn't say it. Jesus said it. Jesus said he would be killed and raised on the third day. Let's look at these together. Luke, Luke chapter 9. Some people would say, Jesus never made claims to be God. Jesus never claimed to be raised from the dead. You haven't read your Bible. If you're a skeptic in here, you just haven't read very closely. He can't say it more plainly. 9, 21, 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's a passive. Why? Because the Spirit raised him. Something acted on him. It was the Spirit of God. Luke 18. I would say he not only predicted his death, his burial, his third day resurrection, but he predicted by words like that, verbs like that, how he would be raised. By the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Luke 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, Jesus told the disciples after going into the temple and coming out that if you tear down this temple, in three days I will raise it up again. At his death, John says, they understood he was speaking about his body being raised. So in John 2, 18-22, Jesus predicts, he says, I will raise from, be raised from the dead. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38-40. through 40. 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no one will be given a sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He predicted his death and his burial, and it's only going to last for three days. Just like Jonah was only in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus not only predicted it, and the Old Testament not only predicted it, but the Spirit of God raised Christ from the dead, which is our main point from 11 part B. In this third way, it's proven Jesus was raised on the third day. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you've got a lot of work to do. Because there's four gospel accounts, plus Acts, plus 1 Corinthians, plus Romans, plus Thessalonians, plus Ephesians, plus Revelation, plus 1 John, plus Jude, that you got to deal with. you got a big case to prove if he wasn't raised. He was raised in Matthew 28, 1 through 10, and appeared there. Mark 16, 1 through 8, he again is shown to be raised. In Luke 24, we see in one place the, the resurrection, and then in John 20, verses 1 through 18, which Bob read last night, if you were with us, another account. All Gospels record this account. This wasn't the, the idea of a, of a one apostle. Three apostles. This is four witnesses. By themselves, they're enough. According to the Old Testament law, you only need three. By themselves, they are enough. But, oh, don't worry. God didn't do just enough. He did more than enough. Because Jesus appeared to many witnesses over the course of 40 days. Luke 24, 13 through 49 tells us that he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he revealed himself to them at the table while he ate bread with them, which is what physical beings do, not spirits. These are not visions. These are real appearances of a fleshly body raised from the dead. He then appears to his disciples, missing Thomas. Then he appears again to the disciples, Thomas present. Then he appears to the disciples outside of the room. He appeared to Peter by himself, Mary Magdalene by herself, the ladies on the way to the tomb. He appeared to so many. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we read it already this morning, he appeared to 500 people at one time. He needed three witnesses to his resurrection. He just piled a lot more on. So you couldn't argue. I couldn't argue. And not only that, but he appeared to the Apostle Paul, the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He appeared to him. And from that appearance, his whole life changed. He was the all-star of the Jewish faith. As Ryan said, I thought it was a great way to put it last night, all the little Jewish boys in the villages had posters of Paul in their bedrooms. They all wanted to be like Paul, like people in my generation wanted to be like Mike. He was the standard. Paul was. And in one day, his whole life changed. What happened? He saw the living breathing, physical body of Jesus Christ, whom he persecuted. We not only have all of these witnesses, which, by the way, are so abundant 
that secular historians from that time stopped trying to disprove it. They just gave up. It took 1,800 years before any serious mounted charge against the resurrection started in a little place, in a little village, in a little university in Germany. In higher criticism. Foolish. Foolish. People have attacked all kinds of doctrines in the Christian faith. For the most part, they left this one alone after the early days because they couldn't disprove it. Why do you keep bringing up the smoking gun? The opponent said, we can't do anything with it. Just leave it alone. Maybe they'll forget. I, I just don't know how you get around the fact that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. His opponents, this is another evidence, who had the most to lose never disproved the fact of his, of his resurrection. All they had to do was have a body. All they had to do was put it in Jerusalem, in shrine, and say, there he is, dead as a doornail. You're worshiping a dead man. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Sixth, Jesus' followers were transformed by the power of the resurrection. Peter went from a weak, vacillating fisherman to a rock on which the church was built. His confession became sure once he saw the risen Christ. Paul, as I've already mentioned, same story. James, the brother of Jesus, which in the Gospels is said not to believe that he's the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians it says, he appeared to James also. I just sometimes wish I could have been a flower wall. Wouldn't you like to have been there when that happened? James has heard about his brother being resurrected. He's begun to believe. And then there he is. It was enough to make James a pillar of the Jerusalem church. It was enough to cause James to want to die for the sake of his brother and the truth of it. Thomas went from doubting to belief with the, with the appearance of one time. One offer by Jesus, stick your hand in my side. Put your fingers in the nail prints. I'm real. Thomas said, I don't need to, Lord. He believed. Seventh, Jesus' resurrection made the Jews who believed change, who believed they changed their lives. Not just little parts of their lives, their entire lives changed. Now to you and I, worship days are not as significant, though they are significant. As Aaron said this morning, if you heard announced from all Christianity, we're no longer going to worship on Sunday, we're going to worship on another day of the week, you would think something big happened. Okay? But that pales in comparison to the Jewish mind. These people have been told you worship on the seventh day of the week since their foundation. And it was part of their religion. And they believed if they disobeyed it, they wouldn't see God. And these people said, we don't worship on Saturday, we worship on Sunday. It's just, what would cause that? The resurrection. If you had seen God get up out of the grave in the flesh, you would say, we ought to worship on this day. It's worthy of worship. Finally, I will say a proof of the resurrection is this. It's the changed lives that have continued to occur all over the world for 2,000 years. Every other world religion has followers. I don't doubt that. But let me tell you how they came into existence. Every other world religion, you check this out. Every other world religion happened by one man supposedly having a vision from God which no one can either say is true or untrue. He wrote down some words in a book and people began to follow him, usually his family first and then his friends and then it began to spread. Christianity is not that. 
As I've already told you, Christianity was played out in front of thousands and thousands of people that could have easily said, oh, wait, that's not true. 500 people all at once saw him. It's hard to get one or two people to agree. All of them agreed, he's alive, he's real, he's physical. 500 people at one time. It's built on the evidence of mass proportions, not some secret vision of a cleric somewhere in a desert that's supposedly hearing from God. And because of that, people have been changed throughout the centuries. 2,000 years have passed. Listen, there's, these statistics will blow your mind. It's estimated that 60,000 people will believe in Christ anew today around the world. Today, 60,000 people. 1,600 churches will open their doors to worship the risen Lord today. That should blow your mind. It blows my mind. No other religion is like this. No other story has this kind of appeal and pull. Why? Because they're not true and they're easily disproven to anybody reasonable enough to think. But Christianity cannot be disproved. These are the proofs, just a few. There's many more. I'll save those for later. The Next, I want to prove or say the resurrection is done by the Spirit because the resurrection is God's approval. Why did He do it? Because it's His approval over the life and death of Jesus as the penal, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for His people. Isaiah 53, God laid on Him the iniquity of His people. God laid on him the shame that belonged to us, the purging that belonged to us, the death that belonged to us. God gave it to him on that Good Friday. Okay? And when he raised him from the dead, it's God saying, it's enough. I'm satisfied. I'm pleased. It's God's way of celebrating the life and the death and the burial of his son. So he raises him from the dead. John 10, Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. If I lay it down, I can take it up again. And he did. Romans 3, in this very letter, Romans 3, 21 through 26, we read Romans 3, 23 often. But listen, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-satisfying offer. That's what it is. A penal substitutionary atonement. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And finally, on this point that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead in Romans 11... The resurrection is the immovable stone on which you will either stand or you will fall. This is the stumbling block or this is the foundation cornerstone. This is it, the resurrection. You either be confident like Paul or you will be vacillating and fall to the prey of your mind and to the world and the schemes of man. The resurrection is that. Secondly, in our text, we see that the Spirit of God dwells in the Christian, dwells in the Christian, and is transforming the Christian from the inside out. 11a. 
If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, takes up residence in you permanently, that's, that word dwells is the word for permanent living. Same word used in John 14 about dwelling places which God is preparing for those who are in Christ. It's the dwelling of God. We are the dwelling of God. So the Spirit of God dwells in the Christian and is transforming the Christian from the inside out. We are justified and stand before God without condemnation because God has done all that's necessary for salvation in Christ. Now this is where I want to show you the chapter and how it unfolds so beautifully. Listen to this. Romans 11. Now we go back to the very first verse in the chapter. Romans 8, 1 through 3. The fact of the resurrection is why you can believe the first three verses. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So we can be sure that we are justified and have a standing in front of God and before God because of the truth of the resurrection, which causes us to believe that we are not condemned. Believe that God has put together a penal substitutionary atoning sacrifice. To believe, to actually comprehend and accept that the spirit of liberty has set us free from the condemnation due to our sins. Secondly, because we are justified... Now he's building, because we're justified, we can be confident that we will be transformed by the person and work of Christ. So in Romans 8, 4 through 8, he continues to build the argument. In order, that's why he's doing what he's doing. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. It's not just that God will raise you up one day and glorify you. And it's not just that you are justified in front of God in Christ but He is making you righteous now because the Spirit dwells in you. Now I want to step on your toes just for a moment because all of you have been nodding your heads and some of you have been amening quietly because we're scared we might offend somebody if we say it out loud. It's okay. Listen. If your life is not changing from the inside out, you do not have the Spirit of God in you. And you have no reason to believe you are one of His. For you to say you are a Christian and yet you are not being changed, discernibly changed, bearing fruit, is a walking contradiction to the gospel. And it is a blasphemy unto God. Because what you're actually saying is, your powerful spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me, but my sin's just too big, you can't change me. No. The pivot point of Romans 8 is verse 11 because of the resurrection. Justification is true. Because of the resurrection, verses 4 through 8, sanctification is true. It will happen. It's definite. It's not a question in Paul's mind. That's why he has solid rock confidence because of the resurrection in these other truths. That's why I said it's the center. Everything orbits around it. If this isn't true, nothing's true. He goes on to say, 
as he continues, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They're changed inside to out. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's why I say, if you are not changing, being transformed, bearing fruit, you're not His. You're hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The resurrection, the Spirit's power in resurrection is the proof that justification is true and sanctification is true. And thirdly, it is that we are being transformed by being in the Spirit and the Spirit being in us. You see that in verses 9 through 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. What does he mean? I'm still in the flesh. Yes, but this flesh, all through chapter 8, is the sinful flesh, the natural man. He says, you're not in that anymore. You're in the Spirit. Okay? If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you argued with my earlier point, you're arguing with Paul and the Holy Spirit, not me. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So the Spirit is transforming us Because we are in Him and He is in us. And finally, all of this is built on the resurrection. So all of His reasoning from verse 1 all the way down to verse 11 is built on verse 11. If you deny the resurrection, you deny justification. You deny sanctification. You deny spirit indwelling. You deny the transformation. You can't take this out at all falls. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. See how he ties it together. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Finally, in this sermon, we'll see that if the spirit of God dwells in you, then he will give your mortal life body. Your body, mortal body, life. Get it right. That's the last part of this verse. And that's, I said it's the pivot. So think. Verse 11 here, all the first 10 verses, they come into into focus because of verse 11. Now everything from verse 12 till verse 39 snaps into truth because of verse 11. All of it. When this came to me as I was studying, it it was like I'd experienced it again for the first time. I'm just praying that in this last section... Somebody else gets that from the Spirit. Because the Spirit did it. I didn't do it. I'm not smart. I just read and studied and poured and prayed. And it just, it all of a sudden was there. So clear. Verse 11, the resurrection is what is the center of everything in salvation. We have new motivation to live a holy life because of the resurrection. Verse 12, look at that. He finishes verse 11, verse 12 says, So then, that means because this is true in verse 11, and because 11 is true, it makes verses 1 through 10 true. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says here that the motivation for living is the resurrection. 
You say, I just don't get excited about getting up in the morning, Carlton, because I, I just know it's so hard to live in this world. And there's so much sin. There's I sin, and there's so much temptation. Paul lived in the same world you live in. How did he get up every day? He got up and submitted himself to the truth of the resurrection. He said, everything my physical eye can see is temporary. And that which my spirit is being transformed to be is eternal. Therefore, every decision I make today, how I spend my money, who I talk to, how long I talk to them, what I write down, what I watch on TV, where I go in my car, how I treat my wife, how I raise my children, how I go to school, whether I educate my mind, whether or not I share the gospel, all of that is decided on this fact. Jesus is raised. You can't be transformed without it. The confidence in the resurrection gives confidence in the justification, sanctification process, and the confidence that the Spirit is in you because you're being transformed. It's all based on the resurrection, and it motivates you. You say, I just can't get this new disciple to walk in Jesus and walk obediently. Don't thunder the law at him. Don't make him feel bad about himself. Hold up the risen Lord and say to him, He is risen. Do you believe it? Yes. Then why would you purchase that? You see how it works? He's risen. So why would you talk to your husband that way? He's not a figment of your imagination. He's real and he's coming. And you're going to be with him in the flesh. Him in the flesh. What are you doing with your life? Just trying to make more money, man. It doesn't even make sense, does it? The motivation for why you go to work changes. It's not about making money anymore. That's just a byproduct of the fact that you show up every day and they give you money and nobody else show up and do your job. What you begin to do is go to work and say, this is eternal. What I'm doing, it's in the balance here. Resurrection is true. I'm going to live a righteous and holy life by the power of the resurrection in me. And your friend says, what's the reason for your hope? And you say, Jesus is risen. That's the Apostle Paul. He's not Superman. He's believing. He's confident in Romans 8, 11. We are in the family of God through the spirit of adoption. I could stay here all day. I would just mention it. It is the spirit of adoption. We have been put in the family of God. We now have the spirit in us. He cries out, Abba, Father. It intercedes for us. And we are confident, verse 17, that we are heirs to all things. We can be confident of our place in the family because of the spirit. We are heirs to everything Christ has. We will be glorified with Him. So now we see the resurrection guarantees justification, sanctification, glorification, all of it being wrapped up in the resurrection. If you, if you play funny with the resurrection, you destroy the Christian faith. You wipe it off the map. You are a heretic. You will not see him and him be approved. You will die and go to hell if you do not believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord. You can't be justified. You can't be sanctified. You can't see God if you're not sanctified, so you won't be glorified. That's Paul. That's how he's reasoning in Romans 8. Finally, we eagerly wait for the glorification of all things because of the Spirit. 
8, 18 through 25. I laid in the bed with Lily Friday night. Many of you know she'd been struggling. She's walking around back there now. Fever, rash, pain in all of her joints. We don't have an answer. Swelling, unexplained. We don't know what's going on. And she, I laid down next to her, didn't I, Lily? And we both cried together. And I told her, Lily, the pain you feel hurts, doesn't it? Yes, Daddy, it hurts. I want to tell you something. It's light and meaningless compared to dying without Jesus. If you die without Jesus, baby girl, you will suffer much more for much longer. But if you are in Christ, these little hurts and pains and struggles, when you break through to the other side through death or His coming and you're transformed and glorified, let me tell you, you'll look back at that and say, that was child's play. That was nothing. And I'm not saying that about a child that's suffering for a week. I'm saying that if you suffer every day of your life, if you're locked away in a prison, starving to death and being beaten every day for your faith, the Apostle Paul would say because of Romans 8:11, it is momentary and light. It means nothing. Why? Because look at verse 20, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's why you have pain. That's why you suffer. That's why you die. Because God subjected everything to suffering because of sin. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in Hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God which is based on the resurrection. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the chains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first, first fruits of the Spirit. Stop right there. What are the first fruits of the Spirit? What? The resurrection. God has raised you up spiritually. You are alive. And he says as surely as he raised you spiritually through regeneration, as surely as he raised his son from the dead, which is the first fruits, you're experiencing the first fruit resurrection right now. It is your regeneration. And because it's true, because Christ is born again and raised again, you are born again, you can have this hope. What? The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Church, listen to me this morning. If you give up the resurrection, you give up the hope. There is no hope. If I was there in Jindo, in Jindo, South Korea, this morning, Say, so what do you say to such grief? The only thing that can be said. The only hope that any of this makes any sense is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he wasn't raised, then your loved ones are dead and they are not coming again. But if he was raised and they are in him, the spirit that raised him 
lived in them, dwelled in them. And because of that, they have no condemnation. Because of that, they put to death the works of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, they will be glorified in their flesh and see Jesus Christ face to face. If you're not preaching that gospel, you don't have a gospel. That's why I'm passionate about the resurrection. You say, Carl, you're just all wound tight today. I know it. Because I'm so, so concerned that so many of us will get up, walk out, and say, so what? Ambivalent. Oh, well, Jesus was raised. Good. Hallelujah. Let's eat lunch. I pity you. I pity you. My heart breaks for you. Come to the resurrected Lord. The same Spirit that raised Him will justify you. He will sanctify you, which means He will transform you. And He will glorify you. And you will see your Lord raised from the dead. Eye to eye. If you don't come, you will see him in your flesh on that day. Eye to eye. And you will hit your face and say, you are Lord of lords and King of kings. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And at that very moment, the most dreadful words that can be spoken in any language will be said. When you as a lost man reject Christ in this life and you die, when he raises your body, wherever it dies, wherever it goes into the ground or in the water or on a mountaintop, it matters not. He will raise you and bring you before the risen Lord and you will bow your knee and you will confess with your tongue that he is who he claimed to be, that the resurrection is true. Everyone will believe in the resurrection Sooner or later. But if you're in the later category, let me tell you something. When you say it, he will say the most dreaded words you could ever imagine. Depart from me. For I never knew you. I have no relationship with you. This feast you see my children coming into, you have no part in it. Where do I fit then? Outside the walls. Outside the walls, that's where the dogs are. That's where the lepers are. That's where the blind are. That's where everyone who's rejected is. Exactly. You are rejected. And when you turn and go, you will weep and you will gnash your teeth for all of eternity in suffering. Why? Because the resurrection is true. And if you're foolish enough to walk away from his kind-hearted, merciful, loving, and gracious offer and trample his blood under your feet, there is no hope. Let's pray. Father.